Hello and welcome to the Book of India, a podcast series on the Constitution of India and how it fares today. I am your host Keshav Padmanabhan. Secularism is a complex idea enshrined in the Constitution of India. Officially, the term was added to the Constitution through the 42nd Amendment in 1976. The Supreme Court of India in 1994 recognized that the Indian state was founded upon secular principles. However, secularism in India has evolved from when the constitution came into force in 1950. The idea as it once was no longer has an ironclad grip in the larger Indian polity. Serious questions have arisen over the last 3 decades on whether the approach to secularism by the government of India needs to be recalibrated for the needs of the Indian people or even if secularism as an idea is inherently a colonial remnant that is alien to the indian ethos whether it be the shabano case or the ram janmabhoomi movement or even the more recent debates around a uniform civil code the principles of indian secularism are facing a serious challenge to discuss this further today we have professor zoya hasan professor emirati jawaharlal nehru university and distinguished professor council for social development new delhi she has been professor center for political studies and dean of the school of social sciences jawaharlal nehru university she is also the author and editor of 19 books along with her we have lalit panda senior resident fellow with the center for legal policy and the host of sabka samvadan a show on mojo story thank you for being here and having this important conversation with us today As I mentioned earlier Lalit there is this belief that the idea of secularism is a colonial remnant or a western idea imported and added to the constitution of India at the height of emergency so for the benefit of setting the context for today's discussion can you give us the sort of constitutional history of secularism thanks so much keshav uh and it's uh, i'm very happy to be on board here and um uh talking about this subject it's a very relevant subject perhaps out of the four topics we've chosen for this uh for this series this is probably the one that i'm most interested in and um to your question now you 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 want to uh you want to have me give a little bit of context about the background in which the constitution approaches even if we talk about secularism in terms of how politics is playing out uh, on the principle uh it's good to know about this foundation that's supposed to underlie politics as well the constitutional framework for it um the consensus that was supposed to hold uh, all political parties and players in place um and exactly as you say the language around secularism has been changing people have been talking about it in different ways and an old misconception that has always been there uh, seems to be repeated more often today that secularism is an imported concept it is not something that was ever meant for indian society and is not appropriate for it it can't um, it can't sit comfortably in indian society so if i if we have to understand the constitutional history what you call constitutional history perhaps a good way to do this uh, is that instead of talking about the entire journey of how the constitution developed secularism we should first start with how did it get there how did secularism get introduced in india and the first mis- misconception to overcome on that point of course is that secularism came into the constitution and came into india at the time that the word secular 
was brought into the constitution. This is again an old, I don't know, misconception that uh, gets bandied about. Um, mostly, I think, because of political reasons. It was during the emergency that an amendment was made and secular was brought in. So anybody who has um, uh, a reason to not respect secularism uh, points to that, uh, that reasoning to say that secularism was not really in the constitution in the first place. But this is entirely a misconception. It's important that we bury it uh, completely. Uh, the idea, the fact is that secular principles and ideas that are very intrinsically linked with secularism were discussed at the time of the constitution's framing and were introduced in the constitution right from 1950. There were in fact some antecedents even before the constitution came into place. But very much so consciously, our constitution was built on secular principles. So let's just understand what was on their minds though when they were doing this. And this will at least make it clear to us that they did in fact consciously think about this. There were three main important points that the constitution framers had in mind when they were trying to build a constitution that had some ideas of secularism. First, there was this deep, and there was this clear understanding that religion was, was a deeply held and it was a widespread sentiment in India. So there was widespread religious fervor in India. A lot of people felt strongly about religion. It played a central role in their lives. So it would be difficult to simply separate it from their lives altogether uh, to, to, to pretend as if the government had nothing to do with it. So as a result, there was clarity. This is the second thing that they were very clear about. There was clarity that the government could not be completely separate from religion. The state could not be separate from religion. And this goes back to what you're saying about it being a Western import. Even if we understand secularism as something to be introduced in India, it was never considered to be an import in terms of how Western nations were viewing secularism at the time, that the state is supposed to not involve itself in religion at all. And the reason why the constitution framers really felt that they couldn't allow that kind of separation between government and religion was because there were so many issues that the government felt that had been linked with religion, but the state had to be involved in. For example, one simple example is um, lots of illiberal or regressive practices in religion, that the state was very conscious that it had a responsibility to reform those practices. Prime on their agenda was the problem of the caste system, a religious practice, a clearly religious practice but a practice that nonetheless, the state was clear that it had to do something about. So how could you separate the two entirely? So you can see already, they are thinking that we have to do something about religion, but we can't be entirely separate from it. Now, if you start involving yourself in religion, though the question that immediately comes in, and that has been dogging India right from the time of 1950, is you involve yourself in religion, but how much in each religion? And that question was a question of equality. And behind that was the sentiment of what happened during partition. Partition was another thing that was weighing on their minds at the time. It was clear that Pakistan had moved in a direction of being a religious state with a identified religion for the state itself, a state religion. But India was clear that uh, the framers of the Indian constitution were clear that they did not want further secession from the country to other religious groups wanting other territories. Uh, and because they wanted to prevent this, perhaps this is one of the reasons that was very important to them apart from the universal values that were talked about at the time of equality, um, uh, one of the ideas was that they couldn't have separate electorates, a thing that the Britishers had introduced, suggesting that certain electorates, certain constituencies or seats in the legislature would be filled by members of certain religions. And this was something that they entirely felt that couldn't be allowed for in independent India, uh, because they felt that that had been what caused partition to take place, further religious extremism caused by 
persons elected on the basis of their religion. So uh, this brings to mind the original idea of equality amongst religions that was brought in by the constitution that we can't create any accommodation. We can't create any differentiation um, in certain very important things like uh, democracy. And yet, as we, we go forward and discuss what really happened afterwards, after the constitution came into place, uh, we realize that this is exactly where things went very wrong about how to deal with which religion, how much, and how to, how to really give that sense that the constitution has equal respect for all religions. That slogan keeps getting said, Sarva Dharma Sambhav, but is there really equal respect that is uh, given to all religions in uh, various different ways? That has been the question. Uh, that the constitution never really ensured that we answered in a particular way. Right. I mean, so you, you point out that, you know, starting from the framers of the constitution, there was always this belief that the state had to involve itself to reform certain parts of religion, right, Lalit? And you, you pointed out parts of the debates within the constituent assembly itself. So... In that sense, how is it that judicially, right, was this interpreted? How did the courts in India sort of look at the position of secularism in India? And how was it interpreted accordingly, you know, whenever these questions came up to the courts? Yep. Right. So this is, uh, this is a good point at which to um, make clear the divergence that emerged. Uh, so there was a lot of clarity, as I was mentioning, at the time that the constitution was framed, that we will have certain secular principles in place. And what are that? Uh, what are those principles? It's evidenced clearly that the two, two primary pillars of secularism that exist across the world and um, are relevant for India are the idea that you can't discriminate on the ground of religion, which is in Article 15, 16, and 32. In various places, they've put this in, in place that you can't discriminate between citizens uh, on the grounds of religion. And number two, that there will be a zone in which individuals will be free to practice and profess and believe in their religion. This is, this is religious freedom, so to speak. Now, both of these, as long as you have these two pillars in place, it's difficult to say that India is not, to some extent at least, religious. But the difficulty that emerged is how this actually got implemented after the constitution was put into place, despite the clarity that was there at the time that the constitution came into place. Let's start with the first one, discrimination. If you view today in as a snapshot of what's happening today, some of the questions that emerge, uh, the, the charge, the, the, the clear um, conflict that is emerging today about a majoritarianism in uh, public life, this is rooted in at least either an excuse or a rationale or a reasoning that it, India was never really equal on the grounds of religion in the first place, that there had always been differential treatment. What, had, what has been called the, the charge of minority appeasement. But if you view this entire history of how religious governance took place in India, you'll see that there are many ways in which different religions have been treated differently. And courts and the constitution have never really explained why the differential treatment between religions is justified. It may be very much justified, but courts have not come and created a proper understanding, a systematic understanding of what these differentiations can be, how these differentiations can be uh, justified. So let's just see some of the examples. Recent examples like the CAA and its explicit distinctions on the grounds of religion are of course really on our mind. But if you go backwards in past, you'll see that, um, for example, proponents of the CAA keep pointing about how, the, how um, there are ways in which temples, Hindu places of worship, are administered by the government much more than other places of worship are. Uh, there is the fact, for example, that 
um, personal laws, the laws that govern family issues like adoption, marriage, divorce, all of these are different for different religions. Some would suggest that that means some religions have members of some religions have more legal advantage than others. How is the law giving people more advantage than others on the ground of religion that too? It has not been explained by courts well because personal laws had been for a long time kept outside the purview of judicial review, saying that it is not a law at all. Um, then there are various instances where reservations are withdrawn from people when they convert from Hinduism to other religions, despite them being Dalit, despite them being of lower caste, uh, of, uh, of a scheduled caste, for example, in the original scheme, uh, a backward caste. Um, there would be instances where um, uh, the, uh, the uh, religious conversion laws that are recently in place, they have exceptions saying that if you are from an original religion, if you're converting back to your original religion, then your conversion will not be regulated at all by these conversion laws. All of these are distinctions that are in very serious ways, distinctions on the ground of religion. And there are, there are distinctions which aren't clearly about religion, but seem to be about religion, like cow slaughter laws laws that prohibit cow slaughter and um, trade in, uh, in meat. Uh, these, these all suggest that there wasn't real clarity and there has not been real clarity about how, um, uh, how religious equality or equality on the ground of religion is maintained. On the other hand, you have religious freedoms and this religious freedoms has the idea of a religious a right to religious freedom has perhaps so far not been, um, not seen very serious inroads, except for the fact that the way in which courts have viewed the idea of a religious freedom has currently today left it actually on very weak legs. It's actually very vulnerable today. Even though we have not seen very serious attacks on religious freedom, they continue to be very vulnerable. How do we say this? Um, the test that courts have to decide whether or not a particular religious practice will be defended as a part of religious freedoms under the constitution is to ask whether that practice is essential to the religion in question. So if somebody asks whether uh, wearing a tikka is essential to Hinduism, that is the only way in which they'll be able to answer whether or not that practice of wearing a tikka is in fact protected by the constitution or is entirely unprotected. So this leaves courts in a very strange position of having to actually look at religious practices and look at religious texts and become almost clergy themselves, become religious officials themselves to try to rule on what another religion says or means something that ordinarily under secularism courts should not be involved in, actually shaping and uh, changing what religions mean. And on the other hand, this simply turns things on its head. Because if you ask what is essential to a religion by asking what is optional or what is compulsory, because this is what courts do, they say if something is optional, it isn't really essential to that religion. And so it is not protected. But if you do this, you are making your freedoms into basically the constraints whatever religion forces on you is what you are free about. So you can't be looking at freedoms in terms of constraints. And this has resulted in various, various different ways in which freedoms have not been given um, adequate protection. Uh, recently in the hijab issue, for example, uh, it was not viewed as a question, the wearing of a hijab was not viewed as a question of religious freedoms at all, because it is considered optional or it wasn't considered mandatory enough. And um, even when the Babri Masjid land was acquired, uh, similarly, they said that um, mosques, praying at a mosque is not essential to Islam. And therefore, uh, there is no restriction on religious freedoms. The Supreme Court said this, uh, if you just acquire a mosque. 
or any particular mosque or you know multiple mosques would can be acquired because it is not essential so even though there have been only such few instances um they stand uh, it stands to reason that religious freedoms remain vulnerable because courts have not made this clear so uh, i think this is where you can say things stand currently some confusion about what our constitution actually says and what it should say on both the question of equality and freedom right thank thank you for that lalit and and this differentiation is very interesting because you know how this differentiation plays out is a very is a fundamental question that i think one needs to look at and for that professor hasan good morning this morning. is where sort of i want to sort of segue you in right because from your experience in studying political movements across india you know have you seen any specific turning point in the conversations surrounding secularism you know when did this begin and what were the larger events that helped shape this sort of conversation ah oh, thank you very much uh, kesha for Uh, for uh, for this uh, discussion i think we've already got a good uh, sense of the context the constitutional context and perhaps i could focus a little more on the political uh, context of this but i think it's important to uh, start by saying that secularism has been uh, a central idiom of political life in india notwithstanding the fact that secularism is greatly under stress as we uh, speak secondly i think it's also important to note that secularism has always meant uh, different things to different people to different political uh, formations but what is clear from the debates in the constituent assembly and in in uh, and also uh, the debates uh, since then which were uh, discussed by uh, larith uh, is that in its various situations and iterations and even today equal respect is central uh, to secularism and that equal respect is what is now under uh, question indian secularism notwithstanding these huge debates among academics and postmodernists and so on has never really been about, uh, about uh, a strict separation between religion and state no doubt jawaharlal nehru uh, was certainly interested in the separation of uh, religion and politics but equally there was the gandhian uh, gandhian view which in a sense uh, prevailed uh, against let us say uh, jawaharlal nehru's more modernist uh, outlook so uh, and and the the gandhian view was essentially equal uh, equal uh, respect so the point is whichever way we look at it secularism in india has been about equality it has not been about the separation of religion and state or religion and uh, politics uh, but nonetheless from the very beginning and more so now there have been major controversies which are far from settled and the core controversy of indian secularism revolves around the status of religious minorities and this issue has become more critical now than it was uh, let us say in the early decades uh, after independence because then the whole idea was accommodation of 
minorities and those who had Muslims in particular who had decided to stay on in the country, not go to Pakistan after partition. So the question was accommodation as best as was possible. And the accommodation that was given was essentially a cultural accommodation or an accommodation of cultural, uh, cultural rights uh, of minorities, which is obviously under serious uh, question now. It's this idea of accommodating minorities that is being uh, questioned. So I think the issue at the at the heart of all these uh, I mean, of, uh, controversies concerning secularism is the status of religious minorities and Muslims in particular and their rights. Now, what are the great concessions that, that have been given with huge debate about minority appeasement? Frankly, I mean, I've also followed this debate. What are these great concessions that, that have been given which have led to minority appeasement and to the rise of another political pa party in power, which has ridden on this whole argument of minority appeasement. Now, the two concessions uh, that were given were, number one, and that was a very important one, uh, no imposition of a uniform civil code. And to this day, clearly, uh, we, uh, I mean, uh, the state and uh, political parties have held on to it, and even the present right-wing party that is in power hasn't really pushed the envelope on uniform civil code. Every now and then they talk about it, but in the end, uh, the, uh, in the end, there is really uh, no uh, no imposition of uniform civil code. And the other are, of course, the cultural rights under Article 25 and 26 of the Constitution, the first one guarantees religious freedom, which is for everyone, not only for minorities, but that's a very, very important, important right. And this, but what is obviously, again, at the center of so much of the debate is Article 26, which allows minorities the right to set up educational institutions of, of their choice. But let us not forget that there are cultural rights, but minorities were not given social or economic rights. Uh, there was, for example, no affirmative action or reservations. Obviously, they could not have been in the context of separate electorates, which were uh, at, uh, at the center of all the controversy leading to the division eventually of the country uh, uh, and the partition of India in uh, 1947. But at the, but the, at the end of the day, there was really no affirmative action or substantive rights, as was given to scheduled castes, scheduled tribes, and to the other backward classes as well, although we know that OBCs were given reservations much, much later. But different state governments had extended more or less the same kind of reservations to the OBCs, especially in, in uh, South India and Western India, where, where very major non-Brahmin movements had uh, taken place. Now, despite, uh, despite Indian secularism, such as it was, or as uh, has been described by some as a minimal uh, secularism and others as, uh, I, I forget the term that Rajiv Bhargava has used, but he's also used a rather felicitous uh, term 
to describe Indian secularism, to, in a certain sense, highlight the uniquenesses of Indian uh, secularism as compared to uh, the separation model or the non-establishment of religion model in the United States, or not to speak of laissez-faire in France, which is completely, which is different even from the United States or other European countries. And of course, India is complete. So we can think of these three models and very clearly the Indian model of secularism was always uh, uh, different. And as I said, equal respect and equality uh, and equal recognition was uh, central. Nonetheless, secularism has been controversial and there were certain political formations and political forces and certain sections which were not reconciled to the idea that despite partition and despite the fact that Muslims had through, uh, through the separatist movement created a, a Muslim homeland that they should then, that Muslims who remained in India should be given uh, the rights uh, that they were given, even though they were mainly cultural rights. Now, uh, to, your, to your specific question then, that, that what brought these uh, things to a head, uh, so to speak? Clearly, what brought these things to a head was one, uh, the whole controversy regarding personal laws and the fact that Muslims continued uh, to practice their own personal laws while uh, while the while Hindu uh, Hindu personal laws uh, were changed were reformed very significantly and substantively the same was not uh, was not done for Muslim completely forgetting the fact that uh, Hindu law reform actually gave equality to women and the fact that there has been no reform of Muslim personal law is to the disadvantage of Muslims. It may be to the advantage of Muslim men, but surely it is not to the advantage of Muslim women when we compare uh, the, the status of Muslim women with, let us say, that of Hindu women vis-a-vis -vis Hindu men. I mean, gender equality has, has been thrown out of the window as, as a result of the fact that there's been no... Uh, no um, personal law uh, reform. So one issue, uh, so then it is in the context of the whole Shabanu controversy that, that I need not dwell on, which is so well known, uh, was a turning point. Uh, the second was, of course, uh, uh, the Ayodhya issue or the Ramjanam uh, Bhumi movement. In different ways, both uh, indicate and reflect on the state involvement uh, in religion. Uh, one in directly in with regard to uh, personal laws and the other uh, not i mean obviously uh, uh, the ramjanambhumi movement was principally a political movement but in the end the state did was involved for, uh, in in very many ways and as we know the state has been directly involved in the if for example the prime minister mm, quite recently uh, inaugurated uh, only the foundation for uh, the Ram Bhumi movement. So, uh, sorry, for the Ram, for a grand temple in Ayodhya. So we have come full circle with regard to uh, the uh, state involvement in religious affairs. Now, to many, I think the Shabano episode was a touchstone of minority appeasement. And indeed, I agree on this one. I think uh, the, the reversal of the Supreme Court verdict on the Shab on Shabano giving her maintenance after divorce was absolutely wrong. It was 
constitutionally wrong, it was politically wrong, it was wrong from the standpoint of, uh, of gender equality and gender justice. So that was not, that was a case, clear case of minority appeasement. Uh, uh, but equally, so, so to many then, the Shabano <coughs> reversal, so to speak, was a touchstone of minority appeasement or what then came to be called as pseudo-secular uh, politics. Indeed, it was a distortion of uh, secularism and a reduction of secularism to minority rights as interpreted by certain institutions of minorities, such as the All India Muslim Personal Law Board, which is a completely unrepresentative organization. Nonetheless, it was uh, taken to be the voice of Muslims, completely ignoring, uh, ignoring uh, the uh, position of Muslim women and whether they were, uh, whether they want, uh, favored this uh, reversal. Now, to others, the Ayodhya issue was a touchstone of uh, communal politics, communal mobilization, or religious uh, uh, mobilization. Now, the important thing is that both these uh, controversies, paradoxically, opened the door for the rise of a new politics, or for the rise of a of majoritarian politics, of majoritarian uh, nationalism, which has gained much greater salience in our political uh, life. And uh, so, uh, and, and one of the very strong arguments that were made by the proponents of majoritarian nationalism was that they disapproved of uh, the unequal exercise of the power of the state providing for the form of uh, certain uh, of institutions and practices of Hinduism while not deploying uh, the same power in relation to Indian Islam. Now, so there were therefore important uh, questions regarding state neutrality, uh, especially when the government allowed Muslims to follow their own, uh, uh, follow their own personal law. So in this regard, Shabano was a tipping point. It was a tipping point and it has been repeatedly cited and to some extent rightly as the most blatant example of Muslim appeasement and also to uh, the claim that Hindus were discriminated. But I think in this case, it was a case of positive discrimination uh, through, uh, uh, through legal reform of uh, Hindu laws. Uh, and obviously it was a case of kind of uh, very unfortunate discrimination vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis, uh, Muslims. So I think this asymmetry in, uh, in legal reform uh, has formed the basis of the charge that the practice of secularism implies Muslim appeasement and that it has been used by secular formations, most notably uh, the International Congress to build vote banks. Now, and in a sense, uh, uh, as a student of uh, Indian politics and of of uh, the Congress Party in particular, I would certainly, uh, certainly uh, say that uh, Shabano was certainly a turning point in the decline 
uh, one might even say the precipitous uh, decline of, uh, of the Congress. But related to this uh, is the point that I made in the beginning, and let me just uh, very briefly simply flag it, and that is the issue of affirmative action for Muslims, because, because when we talk about appeasement, yes, there's appeasement with regard to personal laws, uh, which is regrettable. But on the other hand, uh, they have lost out with regard to socioeconomic rights, because there is really no, uh, no uh, affirmative action. Forget about re mandatory reservation, that is simply ruled out. But some kind of consideration uh, for uh, consideration given to the give, uh, to the fact uh, that there is a very high level of educational backwardness among Muslims, they are uh, very high levels of unemployment. I, I'm sure both of you are aware of the most more recent uh, studies, uh, whether it is the National Sample Survey and so on, which show that actually the rates of unemployment, not just self-employment, but unemployment among Muslims, is the highest among all, uh, all communities. This is the NSS uh, data, which has not been published, but people have been able to, uh, to get access uh, to it. So, uh, and in this context, the Sachar Committee was, uh, was formed, which actually uh, established this. But of course, uh, the Sachar Committee has been given a rather, uh, what can I say, it's been buried. It's been given a complete, uh, complete uh, uh, burial. And there's no, uh, because from the very beginning, uh, those who talk about minority appeasement all cited the example of the Satcher Committee as, as an example of minority appeasement. So it had to die, uh, the death that it died. Uh, there was really no uh, way that in the present uh, political environment, uh, the Satcher Committee could have, uh, uh, could, could have gone very, uh, very far. Right. Thank you, Professor Hassan, for for highlighting. I think the the idea of cultural acceptance, you know, and and, and I I find that as a very interesting concept because for for many decades there was always this uh, sort of belief that as a political party you had to at least you know say that we're a secular party and sort of except culturally that India has multiple religions and therefore multiple cultures and languages, right? But from this, you know, has there been sort of a decline in acceptance of secularism as an ideology in the larger political narrative? And if so, then why are political parties reluctant in embracing the secular plank? Uh, plank? You know, and, and I think you mentioned the Congress and Shabano, but in the larger scheme, why is it that parties today you know, don't want to embrace that we are a secular party that accepts, you know, different cultural values. Yeah, I think this is a fascinating uh, question and it actually touches on uh, the issues that we are talking about. You know, uh, uh, rise of religion and religious politics is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not uh, the fact that religion has definitely moved up uh, in the political agenda is not unique to India. It has done so in most parts uh, of the world. Uh, so religion, uh, re 
possibly less so in Europe even now, but in most other parts of the world, uh, religion, uh, religion has uh, assumed greater importance. But the difference between India and other countries where religion has assumed, uh, has become more important uh, is that in India, it's not just religion, it's religious politics. Uh, so to speak, that has become uh, important. And it is this which has actually led to a decline in the acceptance of uh, secularism. Now, uh, now, of course, as I said earlier, and I don't need to report uh, repeat that, I mean, the concept of secularism has clearly been brought into disrepute by the flawed practice practices of uh, secular parties, most notably the Congress, as indeed uh, some other regional parties too. And it is their flawed practice, which has uh, been become a pretext uh, downgrade uh, and to even uh, question the very principles of uh, secularism. So uh, now, one of the major reasons why uh, why political parties today are reluctant uh, to uh, to emphasize secular, secularism or to declare uh, that they are secular parties, I think has a right has very much to do with the rise of majoritarian uh, nationalism uh, in India, and that has somehow uh, put a shadow over uh, over secularism, but that shadow has lengthened because of uh, the flawed practice of uh, secular uh, secular parties in India. And the fact is that Hindu nationalism or majoritarian nationalism has gained uh, traction. And we have come to a point where even secular parties, or within secular parties, uh, believe that, it, that some form of majoritarian politics, and I say some form of majoritarian politics, is a legitimate strategy of electoral uh, success. Now, of course, the uh, the decline of the Congress and the reversals and, the, in fact, the spectacular uh, defeat uh, of the Congress in the 2014 elections and again in the 2019 election, and, of course, a series of uh, setbacks in state elections has led, uh, had led to rethinking in the Congress, especially after the 2014 election. There was a feeling that the BJP's uh, the ruling party's propaganda about the Congress as a Muslim party uh, had uh, had uh, was successful. That there were many people who seemed to think that uh, the Congress is principally and primarily concerned about uh, concerned about Muslims, and surely uh, uh, the Shabano uh, Shabano uh, uh, reversal. Uh, and uh, the such formation of the Sachar committee, these two surely uh, contributed to this uh, to this uh, uh, impression. So I think that uh, the Congress, as indeed other parties, then began to uh, to recalibrate their strategy such 
that they would downgrade uh, their appeals uh, to minorities and focus more on, uh, on issues uh, that were either of larger concern, uh, such as the economic issues, such as inflation and unemployment and so on, so forth, employment and so on, uh, the jobs crisis, or they would possibly also uh, lay claim to their contribution to issues such as the whole, you know, the Ayodhya issue. The Congress has been repeatedly claimed that we, we after all, opened the gates of uh, the uh, of the Babri Masjid, which eventually led uh, to uh, the movement and to the demolition of the uh, Masjid. So I think uh, basically, once you have such a dominant political idea, such as majoritarianism or majoritarian nationalism gaining such enormous strength and support, uh, it, I think it does. Uh, it, in a certain sense, the terms set the terms of political debate, which is what has happened. So that most political parties are now seeking to adjust themselves to these dominant concerns and dominant ideas. You know, as long as the Congress was a dominant force, most political parties wanted to be seen to be secular. Now that majoritarianism is the dominant force in major parts of the country, undoubtedly not everywhere, most political parties uh, want to be want to adjust to those dominant ideas on the assumption that that is what gains popular uh, popular support. So the most political parties have concluded non-BJP non that uh, the shrinking of their support uh, has to do, uh, uh, the shrinking of their support has to do with the fact that they were seen to be more concerned about uh, minorities and that they have to do things which would please, uh, please the majority. But that said, uh, while, while uh, non-BJP parties may not be uncompromisingly secular, but I don't think most political parties in India are compromisingly communal either. It is something in between. It is something in between because I think uh, while we may not have the same debates about secularism, but we do have very significant debates about pluralism. So pluralism has somehow come to stand in for secularism. Uh, and for the and I think that is that is good. I mean, that's good enough because as long because what is Indian secularism? It is essentially a recognition of pluralism and of the uh, of the great and uh, diversity of our society. I mean, India is the most diverse country in the world. We have breathtaking diversity, and secularism was a way of accommodating India's wonderful uh, diversity. So, if pluralism, as a term and as an idea, and as a strategy can do the same, I think that that seems to me to be to be all right. I mean, I would certainly prefer that we still uh, personally still prefer the term secular because I think that's what modernism is about. That's what a modern society, a modern society has to be a secular society as well. So uh, modernity and secularism go together as indeed secularism and democracy uh, go together. But that said, I think pluralism is very important. And today, 
as we uh, celebrate the 75th anniversary of, uh, of our independence, is significant that so much of the debate in the past week or so has been on the question of pluralism and and the the importance of pluralism and the need to uh, and the need to accommodate uh, diversity because that is the basis of equal citizenship that's what that's what it is right and this is this breathtaking diversity is something that you know people have consistently spoken about uh, professor hassan and i think i'm just going to sort of segue into the last question uh, for this discussion sort of you pointed out that india has this breathtaking diversity that india is a very culturally and politically diverse nation right but in the recent past and i would say this has become sort of something that is also electable is you know this accelerated push for the one nation sort of one something homogenous sort of policy making you know sort of discarding or sort of minimizing you know the heterogeneity of india so what what does this mean in the larger sphere for the indian polity and also for indian democracy you know going forward uh, yeah if i may sorry uh, i just wanted to also add in a, a, a quick question because i felt it would go very well with this one uh keshav is now asking something about you know how uh, you you for, for, for instance you've already remarked how it's become more difficult electorally to be relying on secularism so now this question is coming up what what, what do we look forward to in the future or are we going to be uh, is it likely that we're going to abandon these principles this is a vicious cycle by which majoritarianism may just you know proceed further and there's no uh, swinging back to some equilibrium one thing i wanted to point out especially with the example of shabano in mind you'll remember that in the shabano case there was this instance where um the courts looked into a question of muslim maintenance and uh, ruled to make the law more uh, favorable for women so that it was there was more gender parity uh, right. that that was something that they did however the courts did this by reading ordinary law and not the constitution so this is something i wanted to pose to you mr sasan that uh, uh, as we are talking about going forward and you know protecting pluralism in indian society isn't the constitution probably our only source of hope now in the sense that uh, it can't be politics that we look to it has to come from a constitutionalization of these questions including personal law absolutely i couldn't agree with you more i think the point the last point that you've made uh, really is at the center of it ultimately uh, despite politics and despite what has been going on the fact is that there is hope for secularism there's hope for uh, pluralism there's hope for accommodation of diversity be- precisely because we have a, a wonderful uh, constitution which accords equal rights to everyone equal everyone is equal before law everyone has equal rights and so so the constitution i mean the, the indian constitution is essentially a charter of equality that is that is what what the indian constitution is and in that sense the indian constitution is perhaps uh, i mean it's a brilliant constitution precisely because the idea of equality runs through 
the constitution equality of different kinds not obviously just between between religions or between castes but even for example uh, between union and states uh, to some extent so so equality is is the centerpiece of uh, the indian uh, constitution and so long as the constitution is not done away with i think uh, e uh, uh, equality will uh, equality will remain a guiding uh, principle uh, with reference to uh, the constitution and and i think uh, i mean well yes i mean no doubt uh, the constitution can be used and misused uh, and we know how law in the last a few years, uh, uh, so much of what is not right is being done legally. It's not being everything that may, many of us might uh, find problematic is being done uh, is being done uh, legally or through uh, uh, legal me mechanisms. So it's only up to a point uh, that we can uh, rely on law. But but that said, I think the constitution is really. Uh, as I said, uh, provides the architecture of equality. It is the centerpiece of uh, centerpiece of uh, of our life in a certain sense, and a guarantee of uh, rights. But uh, but also we should not. Uh, uh, I mean, to Keshava's um, uh, questions. Uh, you see, what we find ourselves. I mean, the situation today is that there is a lot of. Uh, acceptance of formal equality. Uh, that is to say, there is the rhetoric of rhetoric of formal equality, the acceptance of the constitution, and that everything is being done in accordance with, with the constitution uh, is there. But at the same time, we know uh, that there is a constitution and then there's politics. So the constitution speaks of inclusion and politics is speaking or in effect, uh, promoting uh, exclusion. So there is, as it were, uh, there is, as it were, a tension between inclusion or inclusiveness and, uh, and exclusiveness and ex uh, exclusivity. So, uh, and this, I think, has to do with uh, the growth and expansion of majoritarianism, which has, uh, in a certain sense, uh, downgraded, if not reduced, minorities and Muslims in particular, uh, frankly, to a second class status on the assumption that they were given undeserved privileges in the past by secular parties, which use them as a, a vote bank. And somewhere this idea of appeasement sort of segues into the idea of majority victimhood. That somewhere, because Muslims were allowed to continue with their personal laws, major the majority community has been victimized. So, so I think. Uh, but let. But the fact is that majoritarian nationalism is redrawing secularism. It is redrawing uh, boundaries uh, to designate those who belong and those who do not. Now, so most of the political campaigns in recent years have actually, in a certain sense, strengthened 
this idea of difference. Instead of accommodation of difference, uh, you're emphasizing difference to actually, which results in, in uh, divisions. So now I don't wish to go into uh, uh, the, uh, the campaigns that have been uh, launched in the past uh, few years. We're all familiar uh, with them. And, uh, and the idea is that, yes, there is a problem, and the problem has to do with certain, uh, certain groups of people and so on and so forth. So I think, uh, but that said, uh, I think um, there is no, uh, no, no denying that uh, while polarization has been uh, exacerbated, through these political campaigns, whether it's on uh, whether it is on uh, triple talaq or on uh, hijab or on uh, cow slaughter and 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 so on and so forth, I mean there are uh, uh, just so many issues on which there uh, most of the uh, most of these campaigns have certainly, uh, in a sense, uh, promoted uh, uh, promoted polarization and division. So, so this reflects a paradigm shift uh, in Indian politics, which has proved to be hazardous for, uh, uh, for secularism. But I would conclude by saying that secularism is so deeply tied to the kind of society we want, the kind of society we wanted uh, after independence, and the kind of society we have sought to build uh, and the kind of society we wanted and we, uh, that we want and we've tried to build is also linked to the kind of democracy we want. Do we want substantive democracy or do we want majoritarian democracy? I think for seven decades, we surely attempted with many flaws, with many uh, limitations and weaknesses, a substantive democracy. Now, we seem to be entering a phase where we think substantive democracy is problematic for the reasons we have discussed, and uh, that democracy means majority rule, and majority is defined as an ethnic uh, majority. But secularism, uh, Indian secularism, and pluralism are the greatest strengths of our democracy. And, uh, and indeed, I would argue that, India, uh, that secularism was absolutely essential to the sustenance of uh, democratic governance in the face of such tremendous and enormous ethnic, linguistic, uh, religious, and regional uh, diversity. You know, dilution of secularism, as has happened, as we have witnessed in the past few years, has resulted in the abridgment of uh, citizenship. Now, so far, it has not resulted in the abridgment of citizenship of the citizens of India, no matter which religion they belong to. But the very fact that we could uh, introduce a religious criteria, even for uh, refugees coming to India, uh, to India through the Citizenship Amendment Act. I think we have come a long way, clearly, from the idea of equal citizenship, which was not 
which is not uh, non-religious, to an idea of citizenship, which is uh, including some and excluding uh, and excluding uh, some. So I think there is a, the, the the Citizenship Amendment Act is perhaps uh, the clearest indication yet of. Uh, the dilution of secularism, and through that, the abridgment of equal citizenship, which is uh, the uh, which is absolutely central to democracy itself. So the protection of uh, uh, the protection and flourishing of democracy is closely linked to religious freedom and to equal respect of all religions. Uh, so religious freedom and democracy are closely uh, intertwined. So if we want to sustain and rejuvenate Indian democracy, which has also been under stress, largely because secularism has been under stress. So I think we will do well. And I do think that there is I mean, that was a sense that I have got uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks in the run-up to the 75th, uh, 75th year of Indian independence and the debate since then, that there is a recognition uh, of the importance and the intertwining of uh, religious freedom and diversity and, uh, and democracy. In short, I think we all recognize that, uh, that, you know, the very idea of Indianness, I mean, is, it's a non-religious idea. The very idea of Indianness is non-religious. You can at best call it cultural in some respects, but it, the very idea of Indianness is embedded in freedom, in equality, in justice, irrespective of caste, creed, or ideological, uh, ideological affiliation. That is the sole determinant and definition of Indianness. And I think the vast majority of people in India uh, recognize this. Thank you, Professor Hassan. I thank you both for being here and sharing your views of secularism today. This brings us to the end of episode two of the Book of India Conversations. The Vidhi Center for Legal Policy will continue to hold a series of offline and online conversations with the aim to start a broader discussion on the constitution of India. Thank you.